Welcome to Living Chassidus. Together, let's live the Chassidus we learn. Okay, welcome everybody. We are here for part two of our Organize Your Finances, A Human Approach to Money with Stephanie Gankin. We're so lucky to have her. And get excited because tonight we're going to cover all those topics you guys asked about last time and that you really, really want to know about. So join us tonight for part two right here, right now. Thank you, Stephanie, and you can get started. Great. Well, <clears throat> welcome back, everybody. And um, we're going to pick up where we left off from last time. But before I get into the next part of the discussion, which is a lot of the stuff that you asked about. So I built out that part. I wanted to see if there were any questions that you might have thought about in between when we met and now that maybe you were shy to ask or you thought about and you came up with something that you wanted to ask. So this time's for you. I wanted to just address anything that you know might've come up for you. I think one of the things I heard about yeah. is um, in regards to working on our credit. Um, right. I think there were a lot of questions. We, a few people asked me about it. Um, mm -hmm. So that was one of them. And also someone said that they're, type, it's, they're typing, so it takes a little bit longer to type a question in the chat. So just a heads up. Oh, uh, for sure. Will you, um, Michal, will you monitor the chat box? Yes, so please message the second living Chassidus, um, and then I'll be monitoring. If, if you're sending a private message, please send it to living Chassidus too, the one with the blue, blue background on the logo. Yeah, it would be great if you could monitor and just flag it when somebody has a question in the chat box. So we're going to pick up on credit since you mentioned it today, you know, just now, because there were there were a lot of questions about it. And I had some more stuff I wanted to share with you about it. But first, and I don't know if it's best for me to put this in the chat box, but I, I went back and I did a deep dive and looked for some links that might help you guys. Or I could just send them to Michal and she could email them around to the group afterwards so that they're all in one place. Because I, I have lots of links for people to check out depending on what they're interested in doing. For instance, it had come up last time about zero balance transfers. That's when you might carry some credit card debt on a couple of cards or maybe one card, but the interest rate is high and it's taking much longer and a lot more of your money to pay it down. So one way to deal with that we talked about was to transfer it to a card that most of them give you 18 or 21 months of 0% interest so that you can really try to chip away at it and pay it off. You will pay something upfront, um, typically $300 or $500 for the transfer, but then the clock is ticking and you can make payments, um, you can make more than one payment a month, whatever you want to try to get that balance down. And what you're angling to do is to have all of it paid off either in the 18 months or the 21 months, whichever um, framework you opted for. And then you want it all gone by then 
so that the interest rate doesn't go sky high because it'll go into the 20s after that. And so it's a limited time only opportunity for you to reduce the interest payments, which is the part that's so hard for people to get rid of when they're paying off debt. So um, there are a bunch of cards on the link that I'm gonna share with you guys, but please read the fine print. Some of them I really don't like. Um, they'll let you transfer balance and have the balance at 0%, but if you keep using the card for new purchases, the interest rate is sometimes applied. So the high interest rate. So don't think it's, oh goody, it's all free. Let me go shopping or let me just throw something on the card. You have to be very careful about how you're using these devices. Any questions about, I, I consider it basically, um, I don't want to overstate this, but I think it's more of a tool of, it's going to sound more ominous than I'm making it sound. It's, I would look at it more as a tool of last resort. I would not necessarily jump to do it right away. Because I've seen a lot of people do this and then with all the good intentions, they end up not really paying off the debt or even making very much of a dent. It was just a placeholder for a certain period of time. And so it may make you less focused unless you're really committed to doing this. Did we have any more questions about the 0% balance transfers? I think the website that I'm gonna, the link that I'm gonna send to a website will help to break down different cards. And the other thing I'll say about it is that some of the cards have what's called rewards, that if you use it, you get points for it, so you can claim your cash. And I think that can be nice if you don't have debt, but the, you shouldn't base the card that you're gonna get on whether you get cash rewards or airline miles or anything. It should really be a tool to pay off the debt. The other thing beware of because I see people really frustrated with this a uh, year or two later, is you really don't want to get involved with a card that has an annual fee. Because then you're just stuck with that annual fee forevermore. So um, you, you should be able to not have to pay an annual fee. You will have to pay an upfront fee for the balance transfer. But then, like I said, then you have the ability to pay off debt at, with no interest for the period stated in the agreement. The other thing that I um, heard last time that people were interested in, um, and I have two links to a website called bankrate.com. And this is where they list high yield savings accounts. Um, high yields is a bit of a misnomer, I think at the moment, because the highest yields that I could find were under 1%. Um, there were some terms I wasn't crazy about with the two bank accounts, and they're all online, that I found with 0.70%. One had a monthly fee, which I'm not really into. For me, that's like a case of move on. 
And the second one had a minimum. And those are two things that I'm not into when I look for uh, a good higher yield savings account. I don't wanna see a monthly fee and I don't wanna see a minimum because you might not meet the minimum either now or down the road if you needed to use some of the money. So I would rather accept a slightly lower interest rate of 0.60 and not have to have a monthly minimum, a monthly maintenance fee. I just want it clear and easy. So uh, just have a look. The two that I found that didn't have monthly maintenance fees or minimums, and you'll see from the link that Michal will share with everybody, is um, uh, Marcus. This is an online bank owned by Goldman Sachs. Or, and also, um, I think it was American Express had a bank account 0.60 with no monthly maintenance fee or minimum. And then the second link is another bankrate.com um, sort of aggregate of all the deals out there. But again, you have to all So there's even more banks to choose from than the ones that I just mentioned. But please take a look and make sure that you understand what the terms are and that you agree with them before you sign up. Well, Questions? All right. Yeah, there's, a, there's a question here. Oh, okay, let's go. Let's do a question before I go on. So the question was, she's not sure um, when the credit card starts charging interest and on what? So the credit card will, most credit cards, obviously I don't, oh, you mean the, the offers I'm talking about, the 0% balance? I think she, she probably means in general, but I think also she's talking about her specific credit card. Right, I won't know exactly her card, but I could take a pretty good guess at what her credit card is offering because there's not that much variation out there. So this is gonna be helpful for everybody, I think. I said, I love you. Was there somebody who wanted to add something before I jump in? No, okay. So in a regular use of your credit card, there's something called a due date. And everyone should have it clearly stated on their bill. When is the payment due? So just because you have a balance in any one month does not mean that you're paying interest. However, if you carry the balance or a part of it after the due date, after the bill is due, it's the part that you're carrying over where you've exceeded your monthly due date, that's the part that you're gonna start paying interest on. And everyone's card has a stated interest rate. And as I explained last week, we all might have different interest rates. It's based on your payment history and the offer that the card had when you opened it. So I can't speak to what this person's particular interest rate is, all I can say is that when you don't pay off your credit card by the date that it's due, and that's indicated on your statement, 
that part that wasn't paid off and is carried into the next month is what you're paying interest on. So the, the, it seemed that for them, they, they were asking this question yep. because they, it seems that they were being charged interest on purchases for that particular month as opposed to waiting and then she didn't pay it off and then. The only thing I could think of is that if the new charges were on um, a card like I just described, a 0% balance, then the terms of some of these cards is that new purchases get charged an interest rate. And I suspect it might be from as soon as it gets charged that they're not waiting on these special offers, they're not waiting for a due date. So I think that might be what happened. The balance transfer is the one on many of these cards that's subject to 0%, new purchases come with an interest rate. Remember the credit card companies are a business out to make money. So you really have to re read that small print and to understand or call them and find out what you will and won't be charged for before you accept any of these offers. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, no problem. And happy to answer any follow-up to that um, or anyone else's <clears throat> as may be needed. So I wanted to go on because I think there was interest last time in how the credit score is calculated. And so I wanted to go through each one of these because some of them may be obvious, but then a couple of them are not. So the one that you get the most points for that is the biggest part of what's built into your credit score is the payment history. That's 35%. It's the biggest chunk of how you'll be evaluated on your credit score. And just simply put, it is, you know, do you pay your bills on time? So again, it goes back to that due date and, you know, do you, do you pay it off on time? If you do and you don't like, you know, forget about it for a week and then, and then send in money, if your payment history is regularly good, you'll get, you know, full credit for that. The, um, if you're late, uh, if you have a pretty good credit score, but you're late a month, that's going to undermine you more than if you had a lousy credit score and was late a month. And I know that makes no sense because people feel that it's super punitive. Like, hey, I paid off, you know, I was, I was on time for five years. And the one time that I didn't, it, you know, they, they whacked my score harder. From the, the credit uh, scoring point of view, you are signaling now that you are a new risk that you were not before. And so that can take your credit score down further than somebody who's been struggling with their credit score. Because the, the, the scoring companies like assume that a person who's been struggling with a credit score, yeah, no kidding, you paid a bill late. That seems like in line with what they've seen. But if you're acting out of character, with something that's not good, then they, they, they hit you harder. It's, it's more punitive because they now perceive you as a risk of not paying back. 
And that's what it's all about. The next one is a little bit more tricky to understand, let's put it this way, but not impossible. So 30% is amounts owed. So let's say, and I bet most people don't even know because I, for years I never looked at this, uh, how much credit you've been extended on your credit card. So let's say you can use $1,000 a month. And let's say you use the full $1,000 every month and you pay it off on time. You would think that would be okay, except it's not for the credit card companies. If you are trying to improve your score, then what you want to do is use 30% or less of your available credit. In other words, if you have $1,000 that you can charge each month, you want to use no more than $300 and perhaps even less. But the person who's using $600 a month, even if you're paying it off on time, your, your credit score is going to take a hit. So this is 30% is amounts owed. It's really known as um, the credit utilization ratio, the percentage of available credit that you're using. And the more you use, the more they're afraid that you could potentially default or be late for a payment. So they don't want you to go up to the limit. If you have a good credit score and you just like to improve it a little bit, one of the things you can do is you could call the credit card company. I've done this before and you can have your credit limit raised. That means in my example that I'm giving that you could go from having, let's say a thousand dollar limit for the card to lifting it, let's say to $1,500 just because. If you have a good track record, they're not gonna have a problem with it. You may take a little ding in your credit score for a couple of months of maybe five or 10 points, but once they see that you're not using any more credit than you already were, they're totally fine with it. What that does is if you've been using, let's say 300, $350 a month of the $1,000 credit, and you continue charging about three, $350, even though now you've raised your credit ceiling to 1,500, all it means is that you're using less of the available credit. So you've lowered the credit utilization ratio and that will be worth um, you know, some extra points in time. So I don't want you to think that if you're, if you're monitoring your score and it goes down a little bit because you raised the credit ceiling, just know that as long as you haven't increased the amount of credit that you're using, it will, it, will, it will go back to where it was and maybe even better over time. It's a small hit. For anybody who's looking for a loan, like a mortgage or a car loan, don't do something like that around the time that you're borrowing. I always tell people, don't change anything when you're shopping for a mortgage. After you get the mortgage, totally fine to do that or close a card or any of it. But don't change the pick the credit picture when you're shopping for a mortgage. Um, lenders don't like it and it can be confusing. 
The other thing to know about amounts owed, which is 30% of your credit score, is that it's going to be per card, as I just described, but then it's also uh, looked at in another way of, let's say, all your cards adding up the available credit and then how much you use as a total. So each one individual, and then they're also looking to see how much total. So uh, it can make sense in some cases that if you're using card A and you have $1,000 of credit, and then you that month, maybe you're, you know, you're going to a friend's wedding and you're buying a dress and you happen to have another card, instead of increasing the amount of usage of one card, maybe to use the second card that you have. And so this way, per card, you're not using um, an abundance of credit and it, it's more in line when they take it as an aggregate of all cards and then per card. So that's another way to look at it. Any questions before I go on to the other 25%? No, okay. So the next uh, is new credit. They, the credit card companies do not wanna see Stephanie Genkin opening up three new cards all in the same six weeks. It signals a problem. From their point of view, it's like an alarm bell rang and said, wait, something's changed. Did she lose her job? Is she having trouble? Why did she just open three cards all at once? She must need this as a backup. So it's okay to have new credit when you actually need it, but don't go after an abundance of credit all at once. And frankly, don't take out new credit if you don't need it. I think we had a question last week where somebody had $200 um, debt on a credit card and asked if they should open up a zero balance card. That is opening up new credit. And for a problem that I perceive as relatively small as carrying a balance of 200 or 250, I don't really recommend opening up new credit for that. But I think it can be helpful if somebody is facing five or $10,000 of debt at a high interest rate to do it. So be measured about when you open new credit. And that also goes for, you know, opening a Macy's card just to get a discount. Like be careful how much credit you open up. The next part is length of credit history. So let's say you've had a little bit of credit card trouble and you think, and this is very typical, I'm gonna pay off that card and then I'm gonna close it. If that is the card that you've had the longest, definitely don't do it because you get credit for the length of credit history. So if you've had that card for 15 years, you don't wanna close it. Maybe you're using it less, maybe you're using it differently, maybe you don't carry it with you, there's all kinds of ways to deal with that, but don't close it. Take it out once in a while to use it for small expenses because the length of credit history is 15% of your credit score. And for some people that could be the difference between having a subpar credit score and having a prime credit score. The better your credit score is, the easier it's gonna be, be for you 
to get loans with lower interest rates. That's really what it's about. So again, if you're shopping for a mortgage on an apartment, you want your credit score to be, you know, over the threshold so of prime so that you're getting access to the best interest rates. You don't want to have to pay more monthly on the debt that you're servicing to buy an apartment just because you had some trouble with your uh, credit score. And then the last one is mix of credit. This is where I get dinged, but not majorly. So I don't want to make a big deal about it. Maybe it's because I don't come in good on this. Mix of credit is that you have different types of loans. For instance, if you have a student loan that you're still paying off and you have one or two credit cards and then you have a, a car loan, let's say, that's a good mix of credit. A person who's able to pay off their, pay their bills on time will get points for that, that you have a mix of credit and that you have a good payment history. So that's going to help you if you needed to borrow money in the future. But, um, well, I have to say that I don't have a credit mix. My parents helped me pay off my student loans decades ago, so that doesn't count anymore. I'm very frugal with credit cards, so that's not going to be interesting. I don't have a mortgage, and I don't have a car loan, and I don't have a personal loan. So I'm really happy about that because I don't like debt. I don't do debt. But on the other hand, I don't get any love for credit mix. But that's fine. My credit score is as high as it needs to be if I ever needed to use it. I bet there are questions now. This is a lot to observe. There was a question about um, someone apparently has a fairly good credit score. Good. One of these like Credit Karma or Clarity Money or one of these keeps telling them to open up a new account. No, they're like they're like drug dealers. They're like corner drug dealers. It's great. I, I did Credit Karma for a while just out of curiosity. I want to tell you two things about Credit Karma. It doesn't mean that you stop using it. One. The score is an approximation. It's not actually your FICO score. FICO is a company, Fair Isaac Corporation. This is where your FICO score comes. But Credit Karma realized that they can get a lot of eyeballs and therefore sell a lot of advertising by getting you what they can do as, as close to an approximation of your credit score. It'll give you a range. I think its use is actually to see if your credit score went up or down any given month. And if it went down, then you wanna know why. Was this month different than last month? Did somebody get your, your credit card number and is charging stuff that you're not aware of? So I use it more as a signal. The other thing about um, Credit Karma is that, well, they get paid by the credit card companies. And so, of course, they want you to open more credit because that's how they run their site. So you always have to understand who's funding this. And so the credit card companies do. And every time I'm on it, or maybe it's maybe I'm confusing it. I might not be on Credit Karma. I think when my friend was the national spokesperson for Credit Sesame, which is a very similar site, I went and did that and monitored my score. And yeah, 
every time I log on to it, it tells me that I'm getting a D in credit mix. I get an A for payment history and A for amounts owed, A for new credit, because I don't really open it. I think the last time I opened up new credit was a couple of years ago, and A for length of credit history. But they don't like my credit mix. So basically, like drug dealers, they want me to buy more drugs. And the suggestion is that I should open up two or three new cards. That's never gonna happen. Not for me anyway. And by the way, like the person who asked the question, I have a really good credit score. You don't have to be perfect. You just need a good credit score. So if you have a credit, good credit score, it's not broken, don't fix it. Somebody's trying to sell you something. Okay, that was really helpful. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Any other questions in the chat or elsewhere? So far, I am not seeing, oh, there's a hand raised. You can okay. unmute. Hi, I have a question. Please. I had, um, I have a good credit score and I had a, an extra credit card open that I used to use. I didn't really understand this whole thing. So um, at first I wanted to close it and they gave me a hard time. It was like a, a regular Discover card. Why did, um, what, did they, what did they say to you? What is it their business? I don't know, she just was trying to keep me holding on to it. So I gave up and I, I waited a, like a long, long time and I finally closed it. Okay. Um, was it, would, would it have been better to keep it just as an extra or not? Is that, is that was that your backup credit card? How many, yeah. can I ask how many yeah. credit cards you have? I no, it was just two. So now, and you now I yeah, you I closed it now, and you're down to one. Yeah, and that feels comfortable for you. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, so that's that's what it's all about for me. I mean, nobody, listen, nobody, no customer representative wants to be on a call where somebody's closing the credit card. That can't be too good for their career, right? So she has a, she or he has a script to try to talk you out of it because they're drug dealers. They want to keep you addicted. That's how they make money. I wasn't even using it for like a few years. <laughs> like, well, wow. Actually, what's interesting about that is that sometimes the credit card companies, if you haven't been using it for a few years, they close it on you. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's not terribly, I mean, it's not going to, you know, uh, be great peril for you, but it's not great for your credit score. Right. But, See, but they never sent me a letter to say that um, I close. I have no proof that it's so really close. So here's where we're, I'm going to tell you to look in the next slide. Just hang on one second. I'm going to tell you where you can check that. Okay. The other thing before I jump to it, and so don't, don't uh, think I'm ignoring you. I just wanted to get in one other thing while I was thinking of it. When you close a card, and I'm not saying that it's bad, people close cards for all kinds of reasons. You are shrinking the amount of available credit that you have. So for somebody who's struggling a little bit, I just wanna tell those folks that you wanna think twice about closing a card because if, let's say, just to keep the math simple, if you had two cards and a thousand dollars available credit to you on each card, then if you're using, let's say $200 of credit, you're using like next to nothing because I said it's per card and then per, you know, all of your available credit together. When you close one of those cards, 
you're now down to just the thousand dollars. And so that 30%, the amounts owed in the month that, you know, it's happened to me before where I bought a plane ticket and, you know, it's expensive. So the amount, amount of credit I used is more than usual. It could give you a little bit of a ding in any given month. But I don't think it was wrong if you didn't want the card anymore because I don't believe that everything revolves around the credit score. If you didn't want it anymore, then get rid of it. You know, you don't want a card that you're not gonna use and is just available out there for possible identity theft. So I'm not a big believer in keeping it just because, but for somebody else, they might've seen it as important to have a backup card that's legitimate too. So it all depends on really what you want. And so here's, yes, here's a range of the uh, credit scores that I wanted to uh, share with you. So sometimes I've seen this adjusted a little bit to be quite honest. Here it's saying over 720 or over is excellent. Other uh, things that I've looked at says 740 and over, but we're in the neighborhood, right? I don't want to quibble. 20 points isn't insignificant, but you know, it's it's over that mark that's excellent. You don't need to be an 850. This is not like the SATs, it's not a college, you know, course. To be 750, 760. Be happy. You don't need to open up more cards. You don't need to do anything. If you're a 760 and above, that's exactly where you want to be because you have access to the best rates should you want to borrow money for one of your goals. So there was a thing, I think around the last financial crisis in 2008, that's when I worked at CNN Financial News. And there was this whole thing around the country of, um, people who were on, you know, dating sites and would write looking for a maid with perfect credit. This was a thing. Who cares if you have good or excellent credit? It's enough. But it was this real thing to come in as an 850 credit score seeking other 850 to marry. Okay. That's like not what you should be basing marriage on. And I don't know why it was a thing. It eventually subsided, but in the financial crisis, that's what we were seeing was that people were on the hunt for a spouse with perfect credit. You don't get anything extra to have perfect credit. Just have excellent credit if you can. The problem is that when you go from good to fair, you're gonna to start to get into higher interest rates, including if you apply for a new credit card, you'll probably have a lower amount of available credit and you'll, you'll also have, be starting from a higher interest rate. So things that can also affect your credit score, which you might not be aware of, is I, this was new to me when I was sitting with a client and then I did some research, parking tickets, Parking tickets turn up and can wreak havoc on your credit score. Or with another client, he went into default on a student loan. 
These are very bad things for your credit score. It means that you're not trustworthy. The other thing that it will have an impact on these credit scores, and it was also after I did a lot of research that I found out about this, was that your um, auto insurance, your driving, driving insurance, your car insurance, and your life insurance could be more expensive as a result of low credit scores because you're just seen as a person who lives in a higher risk probability. So just take that into consideration. But again, nobody has to be perfect here. Just you're working towards improvement. So if right now you were to look it up and you were to say, oh, I'm a 700, that's fine. With a, a few tweaks, you can get to 720 and 740. It's not that big of a jump. You just have to be aware of it and work on it. Any questions? Okay, so this is where the last person who asked a question, who's not sure that Discover actually did cancel the card as she requested because she never got any notification about it. Well, that's when you turn to a credit report and people are often like, wait, what's the difference between a credit score and a credit report? Think of it this way. When you were in school, you got a grade. Um, at the end of a course, right? So you might have gotten an A or a B or a B plus. That's more in line with a credit score. The credit report is more like a report card where you're gonna get those details. The credit score is based on the credit report. So if there's misinformation reported on the credit report, it's gonna impact your score. So the way that you would know if your score is real or not is to check the credit report. Ooh, it just started pouring here, as they said. I don't know if it's raining by you. I can hear it outside my window. So how do you know what your credit report is? Well, there's three reporting agencies, Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. And so, even before COVID-19, every person was able to request one credit report of each of these for free during a 12-month cycle. So what I was recommending to people is, unless you're, you think you're a victim of identity theft, don't order them all at the same time, because then you'd have to wait another 10, uh, sorry, 12 months to access them again. But if somebody wanted to just kind of keep an eye on their uh, credit, what they could do is they could get, let's say, one from Experian this month, and then they could wait till February to get a TransUnion report, and then they could wait until, you know, October to get the Equifax. So one from each credit reporting agency during a 12-month cycle, and then you could begin the cycle again if you wanted to. What I found more recently was that through April of next year that you can get um, a free credit report weekly. I'm not sure why you'd want to, but people who might be having financial difficulty and wanna see how it's being reported on their credit report might wanna monitor more. So how do you get it? Well, there's plenty of people who will charge you for an for a credit report. In fact, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the commercial 
with some guys who sing and dance and it's called freecreditreport.com. And what is very surprising to me is that freecreditreport.com is actually not free. And I was very surprised that the Federal Trade Commission allowed them to have that name knowing that they were misleading consumers. That's not usually allowed. The free, the place you go for a free credit report from any one of these agencies is annualcreditreport.com. That's how you get a free credit report. And on it, you'll be able to see whether that Discover card was actually closed. So um, at first you'll look at your credit report and you say, I don't know what any of this means. And that happened to me at first, the first time I looked at a credit report. But honestly, this, I know this is gonna sound crazy, but if you just stare at it for 10 minutes, you will start to be able to find your bearing and understand it. And you will be able to look through and say, oh, right, I missed a payment then, or that's when I closed a card, or that's when I opened my card. So um, if it didn't happen in the last seven years, you won't see it on your credit report. And anytime, I think I said this last, maybe I didn't say it last time. Um, if you had some bad stuff happen to your credit, let's say two years ago, but now you've been paying it off on time and you don't use as much of it or whatever, all that new good information pushes down the not so good information from a couple of years ago and the older information has much less of an impact on your credit score as it appears at the bottom of the credit report. So it's a living, breathing thing as it has new improved information that's also reflected in your credit score. So you, everybody can be redeemed. That's, that's the good news. Everybody gets a second, third, fourth, fifth chance with credit. Even, even people who have declared bankruptcy, which is you know something nobody ever wants to do, in seven years, it's gone from your credit report, right? So you can always come back. These mistakes are not permanently with you. Any questions, comments, complaints? Okay. It just got very rainy and loud, but... I what know, does I'm it here too. It was, it's so loud. Very intense. Very, very intense. But the question is, what does declaring bankruptcy mean? Oh, declaring bankruptcy, thank you for asking. I take it for granted that everybody knows, but that's not obvious. When you declare bankruptcy, you've basically said, I cannot pay all of these debts back. There's just no way I can pay it back. And so um, you get released from owing most of it or some of it or all of it. And then that goes into your credit report. When you say, I can't pay my debts back, clearly that's not something you, know, you want to happen at all, but you don't want it on your credit report. It's like failing an exam. So um, there's different types of bankruptcies. Since the last financial crisis in 2008, it became more difficult to declare bankruptcy. 
because people were doing it sometimes also when they didn't feel like paying their debt back. Student, federal student loan debt, they say under certain circumstances, it can be, um, uh, it could be uh, wiped out in, in a bankruptcy, but I have, these stories are far and few between. Most people, even after they've declared bankruptcy, they still owe whatever they owed to their student loan providers. It's the hardest thing to get rid of. But I, I had a client a few years ago who I really like, but she's different, I'll say that. And she came to my office and decided that she was part tired. 10 years she's been slogging through her debt, paying back credit cards, paying back student loans, um, she hadn't managed credit properly, and I was trying to help her, you know, get back to a good place. And she appeared in my office and she said, I decided that I wanted to clear bankruptcy. So I said, let's look at what you still owe. And I itemized the three credit cards she still had balances on, two student loans. It came to something like, I can't remember the exact number, but it was under $50,000. I said, there's no way they're going to discharge these loans in a bankruptcy for you. There's a higher standard now. So she didn't believe me. She said her mother had just declared bankruptcy and now she has a clean slate. So I guess she wanted to be like her mom. And um, she lived upstate. So I did a quick Google search for an attorney who handled bankruptcies in her general vicinity. And he was nice enough to talk to us for 20 minutes as a consultation. And when I ran the numbers with him, he said, there's no way that these um, debts will be discharged in a bankruptcy. You have to have a lot more debt to be able to do that. So um, she's, 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 that was a few years ago. And so I spoke to her, I wanna say in April or May, and we did some other work. She just finished a college degree finally after leaving the first one. And she is pretty close to paying down the credit card debt. She finished the student loan debt from the university that she dropped out of, I don't know, something like 20 years ago. But now we have new student loan debt from the degree that she finished at Albany. But um, I don't think she had the best role models for managing money and credit. And so I'm always chasing after her, trying to help her get ahead in life. But something else always happens. But I'm glad that she finally got the university degree. And I'm hoping that she'll start to make more money and be able to pay off all the other debt. Questions? So the credit report is where you can check to see if a card was closed. That will be the, the best place to look. And you can get a free credit report at any of the reporting agencies at annualcreditreport.com. And you should check your credit report, even if it's not all three every year, but you should check it just to see what's on it and also to make sure that it's correct. The last time I researched this for a segment on CNN, and granted that was a while ago because I've been a financial planner for a while, it was some ridiculous number like 30% of credit reports have errors on them. 
and that's affecting your credit score. So in a case where you find an error, like I never had a Bloomingdale's card or whatever, then what you wanna do is they give you a form at the FTC.gov, that's the Federal Trade Commission.gov. And there's a form there that all you have to do is fill in what your query problem complaint is, and they tell you exactly where to send it to. And then the credit uh, reporting agency that reported it on the credit report has by law 60 days to reply. And if they don't, it has to be taken off your, your credit report. So um, it could be a slightly long drawn out process, but the FTC.gov has made it easier for people to like not think about how to word it or to flag the problem, but everything you need to know is right there. So that can help you get straightened out if something was incorrectly reported on your credit report. So they're trying to make this easier for people. Are there any questions about credit before I move on to investing? Because that was the other big topic that came up. Anybody? I did such a great job of explaining it to you that nobody has any questions. Or are you all being shy? That's what the chat box is for. All right, then I'll, I'll keep going on. And so investing can be one of those things that's very intimidating. And sometimes I find that women are even more intimidated because of the jargon that's used and they don't know what things mean and they don't know what the advisor's talking about and they can get frustrated very quickly. Also, the way the stock market is reporting <laughs> reported on the news, it sounds like a casino. And that could be very off-putting for people. But I promise you, even though it's going up and down, it's not a casino. And so to help you get started without becoming the um, investment expert that you don't want to be, and instead of hiring somebody to help you, I do think that these websites can be ways for you to get started without spending a lot of time and money to understand this. And that's what I hope to break down today as we move forward in our discussion. And again, I'm going to send these links to Michal, but these are three, I think, of the easiest, most cost-efficient way to help somebody get started investing for general purposes. I'm going to talk about retirement separately in a minute, but last week I mentioned Acorns and Michal is living proof that Acorns is a great way to get started. And so much so that she went, as she told us last week, from doing the basic stuff, which I described as rounding up, you spent $9.50 on lunch and you the, the round up to $10, they took that 50 cents and every other thing that you also paid for and they threw it into an investment account. And so um, actually what might be really useful, and then you, and then Michal, you said that you had increased it to like monthly contributions because you liked it so much. 
And I think that's really super. I'm gonna do a little science experiment and see that if I click on the link, because I purposely um, chose the um, to show you what's a portfolio and they have different portfolios. What are you invested in? So um, did I end up picking the link I wanted to show? Yes, our portfolios. You have to just keep scrolling down. So what they do, you don't need to know anything about investing. They really, it's like pour water or in this case, pour money and stir and you're gonna have a result that you want. And so they give you different portfolios. I know you don't know what this means and here's why you don't have to. This is gonna go from conservative to moderate to aggressive. I personally hate the term aggressive because I have yet to meet a woman who wants to be described as aggressive. So it's a very poor term. It's really off-putting. How about I'll replace aggressive with growth-oriented? I think that's a much more positive term. I want growth. The difference between these, and again, I'm not going to make you an investing maven, but I am going to educate you a little bit. This one's very conservative because all it has is bonds. When you invest in bonds, you are a lender. It's the opposite of what we were talking about with credit before. When you invest in a bond, you are the lender to a government or a company and you are getting interest. That's what a bond is. You are a lender and you are getting interest. So bonds have less risk than stocks because as a stock, you're an owner, you have the potential to make a lot more money as a partial owner, but also you're gonna experience more volatility. The stock market is a more volatile place. The risk- Good question. Yes. Are we looking at your screen? <gasps> Are we looking at thank your- Thank you. I, my experiment didn't work. Let me go back to it. I thought, thank you for, um, when I shifted, it doesn't always work. That's, is that better? Yes, now we can see it. So okay, this sorry for interrupting you. No, please, I'm so glad you said something. And all I did was click on the first link that I'm gonna be sending you. This is the Acorns account for somebody who's like, what am I investing in if I do this? So it does it for you. And so here's the example of the conservative. It's all bonds. It's short-term bonds. So the short-term bonds, bonds have the lowest risk because, well, they're short-term. So there's the longer you go out in lending somebody money, the more risk there's gonna be, the more interest you're gonna earn. Corporate bonds have a little bit more risk than government bonds because, well, corporations can't raise taxes or change interest rates to recoup their money. So, um, but these are, these are of companies that are solid. And then uh, ultra short-term government bonds or US bonds that are like, they're really not even bonds, they're bills. They might be 60 or 90 days. So this is a very conservative portfolio. Um, it will earn more money than your savings account, but it's not gonna be the stuff that retirement is made of. Let me just put it that way. So then we get to moderately conservative. And where does the moderate come from? Well, 
they still have the majority in, in bonds. Now they've combined government and corporate bonds. So there's a little bit of each, but they've added percentages in stocks. Large company stocks are gonna be like the stocks of the big known companies that you know, like Google and Microsoft, Facebook, Coca-Cola, Procter and Gamble, Johnson and Johnson, and many more. These are companies that are based in the US but they also have an international footprint. And when we travel to other countries, we might see them on the shelves. Um, for instance, Apple has a very large market share of China and Microsoft does lots of business in India. So you do have international exposure, but they're US-based companies, US-based you know, um, technology and rules and taxation and things like that. Medium companies have a little bit more risk than large companies, so they're using a smaller percentage here. And international company stocks are everything outside of the U.S., and we, from the U.S. perspective, perceive them as having more risk than any U.S. stocks because we might have political risk, we might have interest rate risk, we might have economic risk. Everything feels different overseas, but still there are some very good companies overseas and you may wanna be invested in some of them. So they put this together. You're not picking stocks, you're not picking funds, you're not picking asset classes. This package comes all together. It's just packaged together for you. And I think that's a great way to get started investing. And frankly, it's a great way for everybody to invest. We get moderate because you'll see that the bonds went from 60 to 40%. So we're adding risk by adding more stocks, higher percentages, Large company stocks went up to 35%. Medium company stocks just went up a little bit. And they've introduced small company stocks, which are riskier than medium and large. They only added a little bit. When I say they're riskier, they have more volatility. They have more price fluctuation. But over longer periods of time, 10 to 15 years, these stocks will uh, perform better. But in the short term, you'll see a lot of up and down. They added a little bit to the international stocks, if I'm not mistaken, 6%, and they reduced the amount of the bonds. So you see, as we're getting more to growth, we're getting smaller amounts in bonds. Now we're down to 20%, and we're getting larger amounts in the stocks. Now it's 47%. They only added another percent here and another percent here. They are managing risk very well. There is significantly more exposure to international stocks. But remember, international stocks on, you know, if they're investing in an international index, there's like thousands of stocks. So they're still mitigating risk by the diversification of international stocks. But you'll see more volatility here. I'd like this to be moderately growth oriented because I, again, I have yet to meet a person who self-defines as aggressive as a positive thing. And then these are the most growth oriented that they have for, the, yeah, for this portfolio. And so here you're gonna see more than half now in large company stocks, they've gotten rid of the bonds completely. This is 100% stocks. 
Um, I don't anticipate that anybody is going to put a ton of money in this from the get-go. So I'm not alarmed by 100% stocks. But as a fiduciary, I would prefer to see even 10% in bonds just for diversification. And so that you're not on a wild ride when stocks pull back 20% like they did in March when it was known that we were actually in a global pandemic. So just FYI, maybe if you're a new investor, you may wanna opt for something that's more moderate growth than 100% in stocks. It's great while stocks are going up, Friday the stock market rallied quite a bit, but on a day like Wednesday, or was it Thursday when the market pulled back a lot, you might not have been that happy to be 100% in stocks. So that's what this looks like on Acorns. And it's done with award-winning you know, view of the market and how you diversify. It's, um, as they say, diversification is key. Keeping fees low is, is key. Um, having a mix of ass, different asset classes is key. This is tax efficient, but when you sell it, you do pay taxes on the gain. So just FYI, if it's not in a retirement account, but that's fine. I mean, we know when we make money in anything, we pay taxes on it. So uh, they give you a lot of information on the site if you're ready to get started to invest in your future. Mahal, do you want to say anything about Acorns? Because I know that you've had a very good experience with it. Um, yes, I absolutely love it. I've had even I want to actually mention even now with COVID and how much that hit the, the economy as well. We did see a drop and it was a bit like, <gasps> what's going to be, but right. it's where we're going back up. Like it is right. still on the upswing and they're always the market's the actually at a high. Yes. Yes. So as much as I, I know that for many people, for us as well, before we started this, um, for many people, there's this fear of I'm gambling with my money. I'm just like, Not gambling. it's so dangerous. It's so scary to put it out there. And in reality, I mean, thank God it has really worked out well for us. So you brought up a really great point that I want to expand on before I go to the next one. And that is... Um, when you invest, you must have a long-term approach because short-term, the stock market is volatile. If there wasn't any risk, there would be no more return than what you're earning, which is nothing in a bank account. That's why the two um, things I mentioned pair very nicely together. I said it before, I'll say it again. Cash is queen. You need cash. Cash is what you go to when unforeseen things happen. Nobody should look at an investment account as that the, that's the thing they're gonna go to this month, next year, or the year after that. It's very important to have a long-term approach on investing. So when people would say to me, oh, COVID, oh, the government, oh, what the election, we're not investing for right now. If you are, you're doing it wrong. So we're investing for the future. So when I ask clients, hey, do you think that we'll be in COVID in 10 years? And they go, oh my God, we better not be. And we're not gonna be, okay? I can't predict what 
the intervening years are going to be like, but we're not going to be in this situation. So don't say that what's happening now is what's going to be happening in the future. What's happening now is happening now. Cash is very important. Your savings account is going to be the thing that carries you through. But we still have to plan for our future. And so where are you going to be and what are you going to need in 10 years, 15 years, 30 years? It's not going to be where you are now. Everything's going to change. So, you know, when we go back to COVID, the election, North Korea, anything you could throw at me, that's not where we're going to be in 10, 15, 30 years. I can't predict where we're going to be. But what we see is over the long time, the stock market if you stretch it out 10, 15, 30 years, it's just an upward trend. And so the panic is where people get messed up. This thinking of, wow, I'm making up a number right now. I had $5,000 in Acorn and then the market pulled back and I only have 3,000. So what we do with our limited capacity to handle our emotions for investing is we go and we sell everything to protect what's left. That is exactly the wrong answer. Don't even look at the account when you know the stock market has, has, has pulled back because it's gonna come back because these portfolios are very diversified. If you can't handle any drop, be on the conservative side of the end, which is where I started. If you're like, I'm cool as can be, I'm not gonna even look at this darn thing for 10 years. That's great. You're going to be very successful investor. But, you know, people feel like we can't control the market, but you actually control everything that matters in the market. Number one, your behavior. There's not, you can have the most money in the world and the best investment advisor, but if you're screaming sell when things get rough, you're just going to end up buying high and selling low. And that's the way to lose money, not make money. The next part is your what's called your contribution rate. How much money are you putting into this thing? It's not a get rich quick scheme. It's a get rich slow scheme. And so we live in the era where everybody just wants to be, you know, proven right, right away. That's not what's going to happen with investing. It's going to take time. And so you have to be in it for the long haul. You have to be patient. The rest of it, risk is a factor of what's called asset allocation, which is a big fancy term for the stock to bond ratio. The more stocks you have, the greater the risk is. The risk being on these kinds of portfolios of a short-term pullback, a short-term loss, and you're doing that in exchange for a larger long-term gain. That's it, folks. So if you're like, I don't, I have money in the bank. I'm good. I'm not going to touch this for 15 years. Then you're going to be fine. Just don't look. Well, I'm going to tell you, don't look. You're going to look anyway. So I'm going to stop saying it. But um, somebody that I work with from from the Hasidic community, I trained her in this, and I'm like a broken record. I say the same thing again and again, and I love her dearly. But in May, she called, no, she sent me an email and she said, I know you're going to be mad at me. I'm not mad at anybody. And she said, in March, when the market dropped 20%, I panicked listening to everybody else. And I sold what you told me not to sell. 
And so I, I need help getting back into the market. I'm not mad, but I am a broken record. I wish you would have called me when you were panicking because I would have talked you down from it. So it's not a fatal mistake, but this was money set aside for retirements. And I'm gonna to talk to you about the cool vehicle that she has for it that has a lot of tax savings. But, you know, I'm smiling now because it's like what you tell your kids, don't touch the hot stove, you'll get burnt. Don't touch the hot stove, you'll get burnt. And one day they touch the hot stove and hopefully it's not too bad, but that's learning. They don't touch it again. And I think with this person who felt so bad and she was beating herself up and I know she was dreading writing me the email, but I know she learned now. I know she knows from firsthand experience, everything that I drone on about is right because in, it went down and you might have seen that, notice this Michal, it went down 20, the market went down 20% in March. And by the end of April, it had the largest rally, the largest uptick in something like, I don't know, 10, 15 years. So because the market panicked, investors panicked, oh darn, there's COVID. I've never been in a global pandemic before. I don't know what happens. I imagine it's not good for the economy. But then in April, when investors saw that the sky didn't fall in and Apple's still selling computers and Johnson & Johnson is still selling baby shampoo and people are still spending money, that, you know, the stocks went back up. So those are the rules of the road that I know everybody can understand. Um, I want to add two pieces. One of them sure. is a... Um something I heard once from yeah. a, an investor as well, um, who said that stocks is the only thing where somebody puts a clearance sale sign and people run out. It's the only time when people run out from a clearance sale because here the stocks, when, when the market drops, the stocks are cheaper. This is the time to buy, 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 buy. So as much Emotionally, as... it's very hard, but I'm so <laughs> glad you brought that up. That's a great way of thinking about it. I've used it before too, when I'm sitting with clients, I say, listen, if we walked into Bloomingdale's to buy a pair of shoes and we walked into the shoe department and it was 80% off, would we look at each other and just walk out without shopping? No, we'd buy 10 pairs of shoes and we'd keep them in our closet for when shoes go back up in price. Yes, that's exactly it. So that was the first thing I wanted to share. Yeah. Another one is a question, yeah. um, which is, what is this invested for? When do we take it out? Oh, great, 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 great question. That's my favorite question so far of the evening. So I think that a stockbroker would say, I don't know when you want it. Here's the financial planner answer. We invest for goals. All the investing I do with people is goals-based. So let me go back to sharing the screen as a hypothetical again to give you an example that I think may help to answer the question. And let me know if you can see it. Can you see Invest for the Future? Okay, good. I want to be on this page again. So let's say somebody says to me, that I want to invest so that I have more money for my wedding, I'm totally making this up, in um, three years. 
three years, I'm really not a big fan of investing for three years because markets are volatile in three years. But this is all bonds. So I would say that if you're trying to save some money for investing for a wedding in three years, and I wouldn't put all your wedding money in this, this could be a portfolio for you. It's, it's short term, they're government bonds and investment grade bonds. You're not gonna make a hell of a lot out of this, but it's appropriate for a short term investor. Now we get to the moderately conservative. It has 60% bonds instead of 100%, and it's gonna have more growth, more volatility. This is, if you had a goal that was in five years, I would say that this portfolio could line up well for an investor who's thinking, maybe I'm gonna buy an apartment in five years. So, that this, so what we're lining up is the asset allocation, the total amounts of stocks versus bonds. And so we're lining it up with goals. Another, so, and it goes on, so on and so forth. I mean, if you're an aggressive investor, you're either just trying to generally build wealth or you're looking at this really long-term. You, you have to have a strong constitution to have an all-stock portfolio. And I don't recommend it for very many people, to be honest. So when you say, when should you take the money out? I have two answers. One, when you've reached your goal, provided that you have a gain. If you don't have a gain, rethink the timeline for your goal. Um, if let's say I'm saying, let me give you another hypothetical. We're in the moderately aggressive. I'm telling you as a financial advisor, you should be prepared to hold a portfolio like this for 15 years. And let's say we meet again and you tell me, you know that moderately aggressive portfolio that you said I should hold for 15 years? It's doing great right now. It's five years later, I'm up like 20% and I actually need the money. Then take the money, sell the stocks and take the money. Know that you'll have to pay tax just on the gain but I don't want to tell you, no, you have to sit there because you told me that you were going to hang on to this for 15 years. What I don't want you to get into a situation is that you didn't really think too hard about when you would need the money. You're in the wrong portfolio. And now it's down maybe for a year or two. And now we have a mismatch on risk, time, and goals. Does that help answer the question or is there a follow-up? So just to clarify, yep. if I understand correctly, so it, it kind of, it's a, it depends how long you want to keep it for and how much you want to make off of it. Yes, both of those things matter. Time is one of the best guides. The more stocks you have, the more time you should build in before you're going to take it because stocks are very volatile. Short-term risk is a downturn that we take in exchange for a bigger long-term gain. Really, don't think of, of investing as gambling. It couldn't be further from the truth. What we're trying to do as investors is that we're trying to outpace inflation. So long-term inflation 
can really wreak havoc on a bank account. You have cash of, let's say, $2,000. What you could purchase with that today is going to be vastly different in 30 years than what you could do with $2,000. So really, investing should be long-term as a way to not only preserve the value of your money, but make more of it. Um, okay, so there were a few follow-ups. Please, this is the this is the hardest part for people to understand. Yes. Okay. So one of the questions was, what gain are we are you looking for? Interest, as in more than you put in? No, the gain is what. In fact, I just I just examined my NYU class on this, and most of them got it right. Um, maybe it's because I said it a hundred times in class. So what we're looking for is not interest. Don't think of it like a bank account. We're looking for something called um, capital appreciation. What we're, what that's a big fancy term for, let's say I bought Coca-Cola stock for $20 a share and 10 years later, it's at $100 a share. The capital appreciation from 20 to 100 per share is $80 of capital appreciation. It's not capital gain until you sell it. It's only on paper. If, if you get a statement and you say, wow, I'm the greatest investor in the world. I knew to put that money in Coca-Cola, which by the way, Coca-Cola does pay dividends. So you will get um, payments even without the capital gain, but you hold it long-term and then you see it appreciate. And then until you sell it, it's not capital gain. That's what you're taxed on is capital gain. So that's that's how your money makes that's how your money primarily is making money in investments. That the value of Coca-Cola stock, for instance, went up in value over time. I'm not okay. advocating that people buy individual stocks. If you look at the large company stocks, you're gonna own Coca-Cola in here and you're gonna own Google and Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft and Procter and Gamble and many others. I can even show you what's at the top of a, of a large cap um, fund. You're gonna know all the names. Okay, thank you. And then there was a question just kind of based on Crown Heights. I'm not sure how that, I think it's similar where let's, you live. Let's but. try it anyway, that's okay. <laughs> Is it possible to ask what suggestion she has to build, to buy a house that costs in the 1 million range? Right. Well, I mean, that's Brooklyn. It's not just Crown Heights, it's Brooklyn. I'm just down the block from you guys in Prospect Heights. So, you know, you run down Eastern Parkway and you'll be at my house. So um, how, how do you navigate that? Well, first of all, if you're looking to buy um, a million dollar house, then know that you're, what you're really saving up for, I think in the first instance, is a down payment of 20% of that could be 25%, depends on the lender, depends on the borrower. But let's say 20% of that. And so the remainder of $800,000 is what, if you qualify for it, is what you're gonna borrow and what you're gonna pay back monthly in the form of a mortgage. So if you're looking for a down payment, and I do do this with people all the time, is that you do have to have you know, a fairly long time horizon 
to be able to take $100,000, put it into the market and come out with $200,000 afterwards. I'm not making any promises, but it is, it is possible and not uncommon if people have good behavior and don't make those mistakes that you could double your money in 10 years. That I'm sure the person wants to buy an apartment before 10 years, but this is Brooklyn, like it's expensive. You know, there's a reason that some of us are not homeowners, that the prices are ridiculous in Brooklyn. I'm, I'm a happy renter, honest to God. I'm a happy renter because I know I can make more money in the market long-term than I can owning property here. So that think of is home so interesting. There's nothing wrong with home ownership. There's nothing wrong with home ownership, but you should understand that it's a consumer item. It's not an investment. Home ownership over long-term keeps pace with inflation. That's fantastic. Your money in the bank doesn't keep pace with inflation. Your home probably will, but stocks outpace inflation. And I've been all about growth. So I've opted to be a renter and take everything extra to put into long-term growth. That's my cat in the background, I'm sorry. Um, okay, this is wonderful. And that was really surprising. I'm very surprised that you, uh, it's one of People the things are, I usually- And I think it's always super interesting to hear what financial advisors do with their money. I was just at a financial therapy conference and our keynote speaker is somebody who just wrote a fantastic book called The Psychology of Money. And um, somebody at the end of the Q&A had the nerve to ask, Pim, what do you do with your own money? And everybody kind of gasps a little bit because, you know, it's still an awkward question. I'm very transparent, but, you know, this was a formal conference online and he couldn't have been happier. He said, actually, that's tw chapter 20 of my book, but let me just shorthand it for you right now. And he said, I have one savings account, joint account with my wife. This office I'm sitting in, I own, it's in my house. And I have a few Vanguard funds that I contribute um, money to, and that's all I have. Nothing fancy, no individual stocks. I keep it simple. Those three things are my assets. Wow. Well, first of all, that's a great question. And second of all, it's a great answer. <laughs> it is a great answer. I was clap. I could, I was hoping he could see me clapping. Um, I, can you mention the I, name? If you think we, it would be beneficial for us to read that book, can you mention the book name again? Sure. This It's called The Psychology of Money. And it is so interesting and it's not, it's not a difficult read. Like he, I'm going to, I'm going to put it up on the, um, here, let me stop looking at my Facebook page. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> um, let me get to a new screen share and uh, Russell, stop crying here. I could, I'm going to, I'll go back to my Facebook for a minute and just be able now can you see um i'm gonna get off of this and i'll show you the cover of the book i thought i i just couldn't wait to go to bed every night and read it he, he's a storyteller and that's what makes it so fun and here's the this is what the cover looks like his name is 
Morgan Housel. And um, you can also find videos of him online. Some of them are more technical than you might be interested in. But um, yeah, it's a really good read and it's not complicated at all. Oh my goodness, do you hear my cat in the background? <laughs> it's so embarrassing. It sounds like a baby. Come here, Russell. <laughs> he's 18 years old and going blind, so he's constantly calling me. Oh. Um, okay, so we have another question. Here, this is my baby. <laughs> Hi, Russell. Yeah. Um, so this there was a if you take out 20% something about taking out. 20% of it in return, or is it the whole amount you originally invested? You get to decide. Nobody's going to tell you how much to take out. That's sometimes just looking at a portfolio of a couple on um, Friday, Friday morning. And he was referred to me by a friend of mine who's also a client that, that he knows. And he said, she warned me that you're going to be really upset by what you see next. I'm like, why am I going to be upset? It's your money. And so he showed me his retirement account, which had a wonderful value of $750,000. And then he clicked on it and a half a million is in one stock in Tesla. And so it's, it's too much risk. But it's in a retirement account, which is tax protected until you take money out. So I said, well done. Like, I wouldn't have done that for anything. But here's the good news. If you sell it and leave the money in the retirement account and perhaps even invest it in something else, you're not going to pay any taxes on the growth. This is my dream scenario. Sell. And then I saw him, his body language on Zoom was very upset. So I said, I misspoke. Why don't you sell three quarters of it? Take the profit, lock it in, not a taxable event because it's in a retirement account. And if you so believe in Tesla, leave, the, leave a quarter of the money of what you have right now in there for the long term and see how it plays out. But to keep hoping on this, how do you know when to get out of an individual stock? You fall in love with it. You literally fall in love with it and you won't know when it's time to sell. Um, which I think leads us into the retirement accounts, right? Yeah. If, does anybody have any more um, questions? Happy to go back to the uh, PowerPoint. Now I'm not I'm not seeing anything right now. Okay. Well, we'll have time at the end. So the other thing that I wanted to just share with you, and you can look at these links on your own, or I could always double back to it if we have time at the end, but I'm going to share them in the email that everybody's going to get, is Vanguard also does funds. Um, I'm still on general investing, but where they package it all together and you don't have to do anything but pour money into it. And then there's a what's called a robo-advisor called Betterment, which is kind of like a bigger version of Acorns. And you can also have a retirement account here, but you're gonna answer, in this case, in Betterment, you're gonna answer five or six questions about the purpose of the account, um, how much money you make, how old you are, how long you plan to invest for. And then they pick a 12 asset 
allocation for you that matches up with the information that you've given them about your goal, your time that you're gonna invest and what you expect to put into it. So um, these are really, really good low cost solutions for anybody who is like, I don't understand investing, how do I get started? These are the way that you get started. So now I'm gonna to segue to retirement and we'll have questions at the end, There's, there'll be time. So sometimes when I'm talking to people who are in their twenties, they look at me like I'm barking mad for talking about retirement, but I'm talking about it for two reasons. One, in that money invested grows over time. So while you're at your youngest, you can make a lot of money saving for retirement. The longer you wait to save for retirement, the more money you're gonna have to put into it yourself because the investment return will not have the same amount of time to grow. Warren Buffett considered to be our, 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 best, our be best investor for our ages. I'm not saying he didn't make good decisions. But you'll see it wasn't just me who says this, it's in the book I just recommended. Warren Buffett started investing at 12. The man is now 90 years old. We saw from the chart that I had showed you the last time, just going back to it, that that amount of time makes a lot of difference. Susan made more money than Bill over the years she saved for retirement because she started earlier even though she put in, she invested a third less than Bill. This uh, chart was drawn by a very well-known financial planner who writes for the New York Times by the name of Carl Richards. He's like, it's not that hard to understand people, more money, more time, and the compounding factor starts to happen the longer that it's been in there. Compounding does not look interesting at first. You can see maybe the first, he didn't put time on here. 20 years might not be interesting. 30 years, your money starts making money. Your money will make a lot more than you will earn going to work every day. That's the experience I'm having now as being a long-term investor. So, you want to be saving for retirement because your money grows over time in an investment, but also you wanna do it because from where I sit, people are woefully underfunded for retirement. So maybe you think you'll work forever because you love what you do, but that's not always possible. And so I would say that for the younger crowd, think of saving for retirement as financial independence. That's really what it is. Maybe you decide, oh, I love this job, but at age 50, you decide that you'd like to take a lower paying job that's more meaningful for you. Well, if you've been investing for retirement for decades, you have that option without sacrificing uh, living comfortably later on. There are also special accounts for retirement that have tax advantages. So who wants to not take advantage of tax advantage, you know, tax benefits? If we're saving long-term, it would be great to have it um, benefit you. And I'll explain for a minute with two of the accounts 
different types of tax advantages. Basically, the, uh, the two accounts, and I'll unpack them more, is the, and there are many other retirement accounts, Russell, you can't climb up. Um, so there's IRA just stands for individual retirement arrangement. This is something that you can do on your own. And there's one that's called traditional IRA, and that helps you reduce your taxes now in the year that you contribute to it. And then there's the exact opposite called the Roth IRA, where you're not getting the tax benefit the year that you contribute the money and invest it. It's reducing your taxable income later in retirement. So think of them as actually opposites of each other. And I'll show you in a minute, but this was, although it's very cute with cartoon figures, this was the scariest chart I had seen when I was doing research for um, a, a news organization that I was coming to give a talk to for women there. One in three Americans has nothing saved for retirement. This is very scary. I have people in their 70s, single women in their 70s, who, if they stopped working, would not be able to survive in, in New York with on the amount of money that they've saved. So it's very important to have something for retirement. Um, just a couple of more things, just to give you a concept. This came from another very well-known financial planner called My Michael Kitsis. He's, he was sort of, I made this chart a little too big. Oops. He said, if you feel like you don't have money to be able to, you know, save for retirement now, then what could you do to either earn more money so that there's more to save? And it doesn't have to be a ton. Then are you managing your spending or did you start spending more when you got that last job? which is called lifestyle creep. And are you actually saving that raise that you got? So that's the, the next thing. Then you wanna make sure that the money that you can save, you're investing it to grow is the portfolio, is the investment appropriately invested for long-term growth. If you're 23 years old and you're putting money in a retirement account, you have four decades until you could take it out. You really want to be stock heavy. And then when you're getting closer to the date of retirement, like you're, let's say, 50 years old and you think you'll retire at 60, you will obviously have to not be in the same investment anymore. You don't want to be stock heavy. You want to preserve it. And that's when you want more bonds. So this is a good chart to help a saver investor think about different stages. Oh my God, I might have to do something with the cat in a second. Russell, everyone can hear you. He wants water, so he's crying like a baby. He has water, but he likes it when I get up and I give him new water because it always tastes yummier. So here's the um, traditional IRA and Roth IRA side by side. Can you see my screen? Just wanna make sure, great. So where my cursor is, contributions can be tax deductible. Let's say you open up a traditional IRA 
that's an individual retirement account. The traditional means that it's going to be what's typically called pre-tax. It means that let's say you put $1,000 in a traditional IRA this year. Then when you do your taxes uh, for April 15th, for you know, uh, your taxes for 2020, you can deduct that $1,000 contribution that you made to the traditional IRA and therefore reduce your taxes for 2020. So that's why we call it pre-tax, where we're taking the tax break for the year that it was contributed. Then we invest the money. You don't want money sitting in cash that you're not going to use for four decades. So we want to invest it. I'm going to show you something that Vanguard does that's very nice for such an account. All your earnings grow tax deferred. Now let's go back to my example of my client from Friday morning who had a half million dollars in Tesla. He could sell that, keep it in the IRA and not have to pay taxes. That's a very, in a regular investment account, he would have owed you know, more than a quarter of a million dollars in taxes on that, probably. He bought Tesla very, very low. When you take it out in retirement, that's when you pay income tax on the money. The income tax is deferred up front. It grows tax without taxes as long as it's in the IRA all those decades. When you start taking the money out in retirement, age 59 and a half or after, that's when tax will be applied to the withdrawal. So in the pre-tax, we're just deferring taxes, basically. The Roth is on the other side. The contributions, again, let's say we put $1,000 into a Roth IRA. We pull it from your bank account. It's already been taxed through your payroll. We don't take a tax deduction on this when we file our taxes in you know, for April 15th. We don't take the tax deduction. The earnings grow tax-free because we're never going to pay taxes on the growth. You will not pay income tax when you take it out after age 59 and a half. So what goes in tax deductible comes out where you pay taxes. Here, where you've already paid the taxes up front and didn't take the tax break, you will not have to pay taxes on the growth when you use it for retirement. People love to ask me, which one is better? There's a whole, it depends what you're trying to do. If the only way you would be able to contribute to a retirement account is if you had a tax break for this year, then take it. There are income limits. So you need to check that first. If you work with an accountant, an accountant could tell you right away whether you qualify for this. The Roth IRA, you can earn more money than with a traditional IRA because, well, you've already paid the taxes. So they're a little bit less fussy about how much money you make when you contribute to a Roth IRA. So there's lots of and ifs and buts, but both of them have tax advantages. So if you know that you are saving for retirement, this is a great way to go. Before I go on to 
Does anybody, I'm sure you have a million questions about it, but I'm hoping I can answer some of them in the time we have right now. So it's either everyone knows about this or everyone doesn't know anything about this. I think I very... I, I'm guessing the latter without, you know, knowing for sure, because I don't find a lot of people who know about this. Right. So it died right now. I don't have any questions. Um, I have one. Yay. Oh, there you go. Come on. Um, Van Guy or Vanguard. Do you have Vanguard? Vanguard. Do you know anything about that one? I know a lot about Vanguard. I'm a big fan of Vanguard. Oh, oh God. I, uh, I thought I put this back in, but I did not. So I'm going to include it in the list. There are very good retirement funds at Vanguard, and they line up with the year that you expect to retire. For instance, well, right now I'm 60, so I'm in the sort of in that boat soon. Right. So let's say then that your targeted date, I'm making this up. You'll let's say you're expecting to retire in 10 years. I just made this up. Okay. Then you would invest in a Vanguard target retirement 2030 because in 10 years, you are expecting to retire and use the money. So the Vanguard target fund has already done the stock to bond allocation suitable for somebody who's retiring in or around within a couple of years of the year 2030. It's very low fee and it's very nicely done. Does that answer your question? Yep. Is that also the, that I pay no taxes on the money that goes into it? So if you're eligible and you open it up, let's say in a traditional IRA and you, there are income limits on this, which I can also set, they're confusing though. So I'm not going to lie to you, but if you are earning um, well, also married filing jointly has, I'm not going to be able to throw out a number for you right now for a lot of reasons, but if you qualify for the traditional IRA, then you can deduct the contribution, which because you're over 50, you could put a maximum this year of $7,000 into um, a traditional IRA if you qualify according to the income limit and take the tax deduction of the $7,000. And I would recommend investing in, in the Vanguard 2030 because it's appropriate for people, let's say, who are, if you're planning to retire in five years, then look for Vanguard Target Retirement 2025, because that's a, that's a little bit less in stocks, a little bit more in bonds and short-term vehicles. So you'll get less volatility than you would in a 2030, which the additional five years adds a little bit more to the, um, U.S. and international stocks. Okay. So any, any follow-up questions? I'm sorry I can't tell you the exact amount, but if, if you're married and you file jointly and neither one of you has a retirement account at work, then I think, well, I can look it up for you right now and tell no, you. No, it's okay. We're both, we're both unemployed. 
ah, then here's the other thing that you need to know. There has to be earned income in order to contribute to these. And I was remiss in not saying that up front. These accounts that have the tax benefits, you have to have what's called earned income, income that you went out for a job to earn in order to contribute to. Did, you, did either one of you have income through any part of 2020? Yeah, we were working until um, he just lost it a couple weeks ago. Oh, I'm I, sorry. Till April. Okay, so then I think you would be eligible because if you worked uh, in the first part of the year, as long as one of you's worked, when you when you're married and you file jointly, the spouse has the right to contribute if the other spouse was eligible because you're an economic unit. So if one, it's right. good for one, it's good for the other one. So that means that um, if your total, uh, this is such a terrible word to use at, at on a Sunday night, if your modified adjusted gross income, which is a lecture all of its own by a tax, um, a a tax accountant, um, didn't exceed, I think it's like 125,000. So if your gross, let me put it this way. If your gross income was less than 120,000 for both of you for the year, you're gonna qualify for this. It has to be less than 120? I could look up the exact number. Modified adjusted gross income is not the same as gross income, but a good benchmark for me is that if your gross income, that's everything before you pay taxes was not above 120,000, then you're gonna be eligible. But I'd have to look up the exact number otherwise. And they only okay. express it in modified adjusted gross income. But I gave you a benchmark. If you're like, oh no, we still made more than that. Probably the traditional IRA is not gonna work out for you, but the Roth IRA could. If you know that you made for sure less than that, then you're going to be eligible for the traditional IRA. Anything around it is going to take more fine tuning. Okay. There was but, a... Yeah. Oh, I'm, I was just going to say, but, um, you know, I, I hope that when I send you the link that you can see what the chart says and although you might not understand what modified adjusted gross income is, then at least know that it's less than your gross income. So use it as a, as a ballpark for if it's definitely a yes or definitely a no. And then if you're somewhere near there, you either will check with TurboTax or, or an accountant when you do your taxes. Okay, thank you. No problem. Any um... Yes, so there's a question about how, how can we do this if we're self-employed? Oh, I'm self-employed. This is the mother load of retirement savings. With self-employed, you can even do more. I have a self-employed 401k and I contribute probably about $40,000 a year to retirement. So um, there are different savings vehicles for self-employed that allow you to put more money away than one of these IRAs. So um, one could look at a what's called a SEP IRA, which is a simplified employee pension. That's what it stands for. They're good for self-employed. 
um, and a self-employed or solo 401k is also possible, but with a self-employed 401k, you can't have any full-time employees except your spouse. So um, if you have other employees, then probably the SEP IRA is a better vehicle for you. So there Thank are, you. there are, if you're, but if you're not gonna do more, if you're under 50 and you're not gonna put away more than $6,000 a year anyway, then I would look first to see if you could use one of these instead of getting involved because the SEP IRA requires a calculation. Mm -hmm. And that calculation is best done by a tax accountant. That is very good to know. Thank yeah. you. Mm -hmm. um, there's another question is if there's a couple uh -huh. and they both. Oh, wait, no, no. Rewind. Let me word yep. it exactly. Yep. Can you have both IRA accounts and put $3,000 annually in each? If you qualify for both, it's a fantastic question. If you qualify for both, and you're not sure which one to use, you could do half in one and half in the other, or maybe one spouse does one and one spouse does the other, or you can even do uneven amounts, like you take a tax deduction for $4,000 and you put $2,000 in the Roth IRA. If you qualify for both based on income and marital status, you can mix it up any way you want it to. You're not limited to just using one or the other. Oh. And what, I guess, what are the benefits? If let's say we're considering um, our Acorns version, you know, stocks and bonds for long-term, we're thinking, you know, 30, 40 years from now. Right. What, why would someone choose to do an IRA or Roth IRA over doing there? Should we put some here, some Taxes. there? Like how does I think, that? I think you can do both of these types of IRAs at Acorns, like they've got, they've just grown more and more offering more products and services. So for instance, if they offer these at Acorns, you might wanna open up another account specifically for retirement. And then the bet, you could still pick an Acorns portfolio of, you know, moderate or moderately aggressive or whatever, but it would be either that you'd get off get to write off the taxes this year for the amount that you put in up to $6,000 or then in, re or in retirement, you wouldn't have to pay taxes on the growth. So that, you know, they're, they're, they're basically reverse of each other. Mm -hmm. um. But if you, if you're, if you saying I want to use this money before I retire, or I think I do, then you just want it in a regular taxable account. So it's really just the tax benefits. My view is like save money on taxes first before you have money that you're still planning to use later in life, but won't get tax benefits from. Right. Okay. Yeah, you I haven't done anything wrong. It's just that as you continue to build up, these could possibly be the next building blocks for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that is very helpful. There is a, another question. Mm -hmm. um, what happens if, God forbid, one spouse passes away before the IRA matures? Does it become an inheritance option for the children? 
or or more likely, yes. And so the government doesn't take this money back. Um, as the spouse, it's more common that the spouse would um, now have the, the spouse is the only one that can inherit the IRA and put it immediately under their own name as if they've had the IRA the whole time. Anybody but the spouse will have to start taking distributions from it in accordance with the, um, well, they've just changed the rules on this in the new year, um, but you'd have 10 years to liquidate the fund, basically. You'd have, so if you're, if you are, well, also, you can't really inherit this unless you're the age of the majority, like anything, like you just don't get money when you're 12 years old. But let's say you're 22 years old and the IRA was left to you. I do have clients in that situation. Then you will have to withdraw from it by the age of 32 because you have 10 years to um, withdraw the money, all the money. You could do it in one year, but you'd wind up paying more taxes in a lump sum. So some people like to use it over the period of 10 years. But the spouse is the only one that has the option to not liquidate it in 10 years and just put it under their own name as if they've always had the IRA themselves. I've, I've heard that it's there's also something with the will. Not, not so much for an IRA, because if you have uh -huh. a beneficiary on, on the account, so if you have an ex-spouse, you certainly want to change the name on the beneficiary because otherwise it's going to the former spouse and the current spouse will not get the money. So beneficiaries on any investment account is very powerful and it supersedes a will. If your will is in conflict with your beneficiary designation, it moves by the beneficiary designation, which is a contract. Wow, that is yep. very good to know as well. <laughs> yep, I had a case a few years ago of a woman who was screaming at me because her husband, a doctor, had five insurance policies and had never taken his ex-wife off of it. There ain't nothing you could do. Oh my ex-wife is cashing in on all of them does it wow. matter that the will left the new spouse everything there's okay. not a court that would touch that wow all right <laughs> yeah okay let me just check and see if i have any other for now i don't have any other questions so i, I oh, who is who's speaking okay. Um, my name is Malka. Did, did you talk about big? Hi. Did you talk about the Bitcoin? Um, is that a? <laughs> I I actually gave a talk on cryptocurrency two summers ago, at um, Brooklyn Brainery, much to the horror of my friends who are also financial advisors. They were like, "What are you thinking?" I did a ton of research, and what I decided was people who will come to a cryptocurrency talk will be the best people to collaborate with me. And I was right. Half the room had investments in Bitcoin or other crypto. And the other half of the room, not quite half, were engineers who understand how Bitcoin is created and valued. So 
all I had to do was get the party started. And then I was basically facilitating a discussion for people who wanted to know more between the people who understood how it's created and then other people who have invested in it. But I'm gonna be perfectly transparent. I wouldn't put a single cent into this. It is too dark, it's not transparent. The government's coming after people who haven't paid their taxes on it. And um, the government can't even decide whether it's a currency, an investment or a commodity. And for me, it just, I have clients who hold it and um, I, I don't recommend it because it, I, I don't know what makes it move and the, what the value is. So I'm not the best, I was the best person it turned out to start the talk because we had a really robust discussion and I learned tons and the experts in the room who came said I handled it well. I just know that people have questions. So I thought if I got everybody together, it would be a learning opportunity for all of us. And it was a nice experience, but I'm not in favor of it for people who don't have um, let's say, unless you have money to possibly lose, then I wouldn't go into it. In other words, build your financial foundation the old-fashioned way. Pay off debt, save in a cash account uh, for short-term needs and emergencies, and invest in boring stocks and bonds and get your retirement started. But like I said to a client of mine, who currently has about $10 million. I only work with seven and a half million of what she has. She has another advisor somewhere else. But um, uh, she called me one night and she said, I have a new boyfriend. Okay, great. Don't tell him you have money. She goes, I didn't. And she said, he's been talking to me about how much money he made in cryptocurrency. And he said that he wanted to help me invest. Yeah, I'm listening still. And she said, well, I need to talk to my advisor about it. And he said, oh, she won't like it at all. So I said to her, you never know what I'm going to say. Again, this woman, woman has $10 million. I said, how much was he suggesting you should invest? He said like five or $10,000. I said, if you really like him, do it. She can afford to lose this money. This is a fun experiment with somebody that she was dating. If she loses her five or $10,000, it's not gonna make a damn bit of difference. What's but for e the rest of us, I don't know. I just wouldn't take that wild ride, not knowing who's behind any of this. Thank you. So I'm sorry if I put you off, I'm just very conservative. No, 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 you didn't put me off. I was just curious, that's all. It's Thank fair you. enough. Um, I still go to uh, webinars for financial advisors on Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency because I like learning about it. And I actually took a whole class online and I thought it was just interesting just to see the, you know, the wave of the future. Some of these aspects I think will endure, but I don't know if any particular currency will. Um, I feel like I'd be remiss doing a talk about money without talking about also the importance of sadaka because it's not just about us so it's also about being a good steward of money is making sure that we can provide for ourselves 
for our children, help our families, help the community, help the world, right? Money for me doesn't have a value unless you also use it for good. So I don't want to get all preachy here, but, you know, doing well doesn't mean only donating money. It could also be a service, goods, that's all good. Uh, sharing is the right thing to do. You'll decide for yourself what's the percentage. All I could say for me is that I came from a home where giving was very important, even when we didn't have a lot. And as an adult, what I have set out to do is to make sure that A, when I'm doing well, each year I, get, I, I donate more and more money and I add all the time new organizations that I want to support. So for me, this is part of growth as I grow spiritually, professionally, um, monetarily, that for me, there's always growth with Sadaka as well. So that, I just offer that up as an idea for you to keep that in mind as you're growing money for yourself, for your future, for your family, that there's also growth that can happen for charity as well. And I think that balance helps to keep us in line. Wow, I have my youngest person here. My youngest investor has uh, arrived on camera. I want to hold off for a second because I want to talk about what are some of the biggest takeaways from the two days that we've been together. But does it make sense for me to see if there are any remaining questions or should I go through them and then just open it up to any last questions? What do you, what do you think, Michal? So far, I'm not seeing any questions on the chat. So maybe we'll... Okay. So then I'll go through them so that like, how do I wrap my arms? How do I help you wrap your arms around all we've spoken about? Because honestly, each topic that I've spoken about, I do an hour and a half lecture on each topic. So I've kind of condensed this, mushed it together and given you the Reader's Digest version. But um, as you can see, there's a lot to know about money. And I know that I've, I've thrown a lot at you. So here's how I could break it down into digestible pieces so you can figure out your next steps. So first of all, it's not bad to talk about money. You can talk about money with close friends. Again, we're not asking personal questions like how much do you make or what do you spend on rent? We're talking about, you know, how do you think about savings or what are some of the ways that you invest or have you read anything about investing? When women share, we just learn so much more and we become more competent in this. My financial journey besides at home, talking to my father about money and getting good ideas for a lifetime was when I joined CNN Financial News and people are talking about money all day long. And that was my real initiation in talking to my production team. And we shared so much information and I felt that it really benefited me. So don't be shy to talk about money. Are you thinking about your future? Are you saving for college for the baby? Or we're saving for college for the baby. Sometimes when we offer up our own things, like we started saving for retirement using an IRA, then people might become intrigued and ask you, or you, you'll be surprised who has someone to offer ideas for you too. The second thing is set goals. People who have goals have better financial management. 
if you are saving, hoping that you'll buy an apartment after you get married or after you start a family, when you have goals, you start to work on a plan. I have a very dear friend who is an artist and a nonprofit philanthropy worker. She's worked hard, hard her whole life and she's never had goals. And she hasn't had any money because of it. More recently, she's decided that she would like to have a child and that's changed everything. Her focus on saving and investing now that she has a goal. I wish she had thought of it 20 years earlier, she'd be a lot further along. Set goals, set realistic goals, set some unrealistic goals. It doesn't mean that you're gonna satisfy that million dollar house, but you're gonna get somewhere if you start planning for it now. It might not be a million, it might be an apartment instead of a house, it might be worth 750,000, but you'll get there. Don't use money to make yourself feel good. The things that make us feel good are free. That's the, that's the joke. Like, hopefully you figured that out. Spending time with family, which can be challenging in COVID. That spending time with friends, reading a good book, learning something, doing service for others, right? These are the things that make us feel good. Not buying something that you don't even care about a year later or a month later. So don't make yourself feel better with money, okay? Spend less than you earn. This seems really obvious, like, but it's hard sometimes. In fact, you don't just wanna spend all that you earn. You can't plan for goals unless there's some there there. You can't put money in an IRA unless you're spending less than you earn. That's the difference between the two is what you have for your goals. Build an emergency fund. Cash is queen. Things happen unexpectedly. They happen to everybody unexpectedly. So you want to have cash for when you just didn't know that thing would happen. And you don't want to rely on investments because as I've been saying again and again, the market could be bad when your emergency happens. Don't rely. Investing is for long term. Cash is for immediacy. So you still have to have cash, even though it earns nothing. To the extent you can, be involved in the day-to-day -day management of your family's finances. You don't wanna not know. I have a new client who is in her 70s and her husband all of a sudden unexpectedly passed away. She did, had no knowledge at all what where with the bank accounts, the investment accounts, what to do about social security, what bills were being paid, where is the will, is there life insurance, she knew none of it. You really need to be, you know, on the same page as your spouse in understanding, even if you're not making the primary decisions about some aspects, you still want to know what your family has. It just makes sense. When it comes to investing, don't let fear of failure or I don't understand what a large company stock is. I gave you three ways that with good behavior, long-term investing, you will not make a mistake. So don't think that, oh, this is too risky for me. Start small. That's okay. See how you feel about, you know, put in 
$100. See how you react to the market. Also try not to look all the time. Save for retirement even when you're young. Money grows with time. Warren Buffett is who he is today because he's had 60 something years of investing. So money will grow over time in a good investment. Learn from your money mistakes. Don't say it's game over, I can't do this. You touch a hot stove, you get burnt, you still survived, you know not to do it again. Everybody, may, I could tell you about, if you had another hour, I could tell you about all my money mistakes. We all make them. The point is you're young, you can do better than you did before. Learn from the mistakes and don't procrastinate because nothing good comes from it. So you're all in different places. If you have enough cash in an emergency account, try out some investing. If you have some debt, you probably want to focus a little bit more on that while you're building your emergency savings. Everybody's in a different place, but there's something, small steps that can be done sooner rather than later to see incremental improvement in your financial life. That's what it's all about. And also the thing, if I was going to add a bonus point, it's don't go for perfect. I'm not perfect. Somebody else is not perfect. You don't need to be perfect to be successful with your money. You need to have goals. You need to understand that how long it's going to take you to achieve these goals. And you just have to assign money in one of these simple investments to those goals. So that was we have time for questions. That's that's basically how I thought it was best to summarize the time that we spent together, the technical and the not so technical. Um, can I add one piece Please. that I think has has helped me a lot? All do all of these things, and if possible, automate them. Yes, we when said I that don't last have time, to, yes, yes, exactly when I don't have to think about, oh, did I send money to this account? Did I send money to that account right. that I put in my savings that even even certain amount of your tzedakah, mm -hmm. like I, yeah, I, that's a wonderful thing to not have to, because then sometimes we get, you know, cold feet or maybe right, we, you get busy, humble, yeah, and make sure that it's a realistic amount. Maybe you're putting $20 in the emergencies account every two weeks and you're automating that and then maybe at the same time you're putting ten dollars in your acorn each month and you're automating that at the end of the year you might take stock and say i have too much money in cash i need to be more in the acorns or i think i need to try the ira this year so things are always changing but automate them until you need to change them <laughs> yeah and then the next question it was, I guess you kind of put it on your screen, but if people want to hear more from you, how can they? I think the best way to hear and the most economical way to hear from me, honestly, because I'm always trying to help people save money is, um, and I can include it in the links I sent to you, I will be sending to Michal, and that is I'm doing all my Brooklyn Brainery classes online right now, and I do one talk a month and they typically range around $15. And so um, it's just a really affordable way for you to sort of, if you're interested in the topic, like I do talks on IRAs, the basic ones, like the traditional versus the Roth. I do 
talks on 401ks, or if you work for a nonprofit or educational institute, your employer might offer a 403b. I did one of those recently. Uh, you, we met at a talk that I did on women and women and money or women and investing. I can't remember. So I do like to bring women together um, because I think that women are sometimes shy to ask questions when there are men in the room. And I think that we just get a really good vibe when we're all together. And um, and uh, uh, many other talks, um, budgeting, paying down debt. Um, I have one that was very popular that I used to do at NYU Law School for the graduating class called, What Should I Do With My Paycheck? So I get into many of the issues that we did today in learning how to manage your money. And just, you know, the top, I'm doing my next one is on Wednesday called Cash Versus Investing. I've covered many of the themes here, but I expect there to be a lot of interesting questions about it as well. Where do I put my cash? How much cash do I need? Blah, 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 blah. And getting more into investing and what it is and what it isn't and et cetera. So wow. um, I don't know what I'll do the last one of the year in December. Um, I have to look back. I, I, there are a few I haven't done in a while, but I would say that Brooklyn Brainery is the way that, you know, you don't have to put shoes on because it's all online right now and the price is right. And if this, if the next month, the topic doesn't appeal to you, the following month might. So just check back. And they also do cooking classes and gardening and just other fun things. So you never know what you'll find at Brooklyn Brainery. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. This has really, yeah. I already know it has changed people's lives. Um, it has been just so powerful. I, I'm getting so many messages saying, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, so that's so nice. Yes. You know, so thank you. Goes you to have you. to start somewhere. So don't feel like you have to do everything all at once. Just take on one thing and say for the next six months, I'm going to focus on this and, and don't judge yourself. See what the result is when you do that, or think about your goals, or if you're married, talk to your spouse about what, what, what should we be doing? What would you like to have? If we retire, what would we look like that to look like? So again, it's the, you start in one place and then you see where it takes you. Life takes you to interesting places.